Hi, everybody. Mark Middleton along with Bill Schaefer. Welcome back to Growing Boulder, the show that proves each and every week that it's never too late to create the life that you want. And today you'll meet a medical pioneer on this program. What she says about preventing cancer is going to infuriate you, but maybe also inspire you too. Plus, we've got one of the greatest rock vocalists from the 60s, the president of the Center for Productive Longevity, and more all today on Growing Boulder. America's dark, dirty, and unfortunate secrets is the child sex trafficking trade. It's a big, big problem. Dr. Lois Lee is a true pioneer in saving the helpless children that become the victims of the human sex trafficking trade. She is president and founder of Children of the Night, which is the first and the most comprehensive program in North America that deals with sex trafficking of children. Since 1979, she has rescued over 10,000 American children from prostitution. Let's welcome Dr. Lois Lee. Hello, Dr. Lee. How are you? I'm good, and you? Uh, We're great, thank you. We appreciate you uh, taking some time to talk to us about this unbelievable problem. You know, most people are unaware of the extent of this problem globally, totally blown away to learn how pervasive it is in this country. And, And of course, if even one child is taken advantage of, it's too many. But give us a sense of how big this problem is in the U.S. Well, it's not as big as it was. It, um, the problem started, the epidemic started in 1979 here in the United States, and it was a result of some um, sloppy legislation uh, promoted by Congress. It was under the uh, Juvenile Justice Prevention Delinquency Act where Congress prevented the police in each state from arresting children for runaway, truancy, curfew. And they forbid the police from bringing a child into the police department if there was any chance that the child could have eye contact with an adult. Now, as young liberals, we all thought that looked good on the face. The social impact was horrific Mm. because what it did is it forced thousands of children, hundreds of thousands of children, on the streets throughout America. Very much like when they closed the mental health hospitals and they forced the homeless, the mentally ill, on the streets. Same kind of social impact. Um, Problem was there were pimps waiting for them and men who wanted to have sex with them and, and... the child prostitution epidemic started, boom, 1979. And by 1981, I think the General Accounting Office did a study and said there were 600,000 children in America on the streets under the age of 16 prostituting for survival. Shelters were something that had not quite been created, that were in starting to, to, to pop up. And the shelters were designed to help a child for 14 days uh, using student interns, federally funded, and at the end of the 14 days, they would re- return the child home after they did their counseling. Well, that was of no use to children who had been abused, uh, neglected, or even abandoned and uh, on the streets because there were no families to return them to. And children who were prostituting um, had no services. The two traditional agencies that should have addressed the issue would have been first the Department of Children's Services, the Child Protective Services, the county agency that rescues children from social workers who rescue children from abuse. And they threw their arms up and said, ah, they're prostitutes. Prostitution's a crime. Take them to probation. Go to juvenile courts, and the judges would say, huh, it's not a crime against property. They're not hurting the taxpayer. They're only hurting themselves. I'm not going to put them in jail. We're not going to spend taxpayer funds. So these children literally fell between the cracks of the system that was designed in order to help children from having to live on the streets in America. Um, so uh, I was doing, I was working my Ph.D. in sociology at UCLA and uh, met with some feminist lawyers who also worked with the ACLU, and they suggested I get together with a lawyer and sue the police for not arresting the customers of the prostitutes. And that's what I was going to do as a dissertation subject. It's what I did do as a dissertation subject in 1975. And in the process, I realized all of these inequities that prostitutes were not enabled to services that burglars and robbers and violent criminals were enabled to because sex was an issue in their victimization, and they just did not want to help them. So um, they were eliminated just through protocol of, of from welfare, from medical services, uh, all kinds of things. It was really horrendous. Um, so I was an expert in, in those court cases. I met two girls who had been murdered by serial murders known as the Hillside Stranglers, which were two cousins. And uh, and I tried to get the police to talk to the prostitutes I had met through my research and met in the courtrooms, and they refused. 
And then one night, an 18-year-old girl who was a heroin addict and was running an escort service called me and said, I sent a girl out to meet a man. He's not answering his phone. She's not called back. I can't find the address of my Thomas guide. And uh, we proceeded to call the police to try and get the police to go out there. They wouldn't. <clears throat> we then had a pimp go into the apartment to verify he ch- changed the address on the girl. And the police kept me in the police station all night long and refused to send a car because she was just a whore. Well, that whore turned out to be a 17-year-old, blonde-haired, blue-eyed girl. Um, and I called a news report at 3 in the morning and said, get up, we got another one. And thank God, NBC, he went and grabbed a camera crew and went out to the location, and it turned out that we had the only evidence after this was the 11th victim who had been killed, and many of them were children, uh, by these serial murders. And I was young, and I went on the news, and I said, if you're involved in the prostitution business and you think you know who the Hillside Strangler is and you don't want to talk to the police, don't call them, call me. And I went into the underground, into the sex clubs, and met with pornographers and organized crime, and and many people involved in adult entertainment that were not criminal. Um, And... uh, to, to find this murderer, and eventually when they caught him, the publicity had split up the team, and one went to the state of Washington, he got caught there, and then the attorney general and the district attorney said, you've got to help us, we need your evidence, we need your information, and I coordinated all the witnesses and went back into the underground, and, and people running strip joints and pornographers said, you've got to help us, we've got kids all over. We don't want kids in our business. We're making millions of dollars on adults. It doesn't make any difference to us, but the guys that are working for us are putting a 16-year-old on stage, or the guys in our labs are passing around, you know, videos of 16-year-old girls, and we're going to prison over this. Get the kids out of here. So it was really they were the ones who pointed it out to me. I pointed it out to the police and started coordinating vice detectives throughout the United States and uh, let the kids stay in my home. So from 1979 to 1981, over 250 children came through my two-bedroom apartment. And I wrote my dissertation, which was 460 pages, and at the end of it I just cried, and I just said, I have to set up a program for these kids. I can't just walk away like everybody else. And uh, a couple of conservative philanthropists saw me on television and gave me money to move the program out of my house. I set up the first drop-in center in the heart of Hollywood. Dear Abby came forward and promoted my hotline in her column, and I had the first sex trafficking hotline, the first street program because of the Hillside Strangler, first drop-in center in the heart of Hollywood. And uh, it became evident that I these kids needed a home, and it took me 10 years to raise the money for a home. And I was just a girl who, you know, grew up in the beach community who was going to teach college, write a book on prostitution, uh, spend my summers in Europe. That was it, and changed my entire life. We're talking with Dr. Lois Lee, the founder of Children of the Night, and you can hear it. It's not always about what it is that you do. When when you find something, when you find a need, a purpose, a chance to make a difference, Lois's story is one of how one person can get the ball rolling and attract just a community of warriors to go in and attack a problem. Uh, can you see this uh, activating people and, 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 and getting people to want to make a difference to come in and attack other other problems as well, or, or or were you just that unique? Well, it was pretty unique for a very long time, and it, it, I was uh, I was kind of isolated socially. There was a lot of talk and a lot of humiliation talked behind my back, and um, and so nobody really wanted to touch it. And then, but I was gaining so much publicity. They did a movie on my life. I didn't even have a life. You know, it was like I was young, and and then I was profiled on 60 Minutes, and people in the community said, you know, just give her whatever she wants to set up this home. And uh, Hugh Hefner was my first supporter and and continues to be one of my largest supporters. Every time I did a documentary, he'd, he'd buy uh, full-page ads in the Hollywood Report and Variety saying, watch Children of the White Knight, watch this documentary. So he was behind me socially engineering the publicity and the social change as I was doing the work. And he gave me money, and we did fundraising events, and and they gave me publicity people. The CEO of uh, Senior Vice President of Playboy uh, was our became a board member who was a founding board member. Our board meetings were in their offices. Our hotline training were in the boardroom of Playboy. I mean, <clears throat> so but it was like without them, I could not have made it. I was really I was I was upsetting the old boy network. I was an embarrassment to law enforcement. Uh, social services were angry with me because it made them look like they weren't doing their job. I, you know, I was I was ripping the covers off America's Dirty Little Secret, and that was the fact that adults enjoyed having sex with children and were somewhere willing to pay for it, and they didn't care. They discarded the children. So 
yes, a lot of people have come to the issue. Many of them have the passion, but sometimes the passion for the wrong reason. Um, people think, well, this is the way I get publicity. I can write a book or I can do a movie. And I say, you know, you are what you do, not what you say you do. So with your fancy trafficking websites, you know, <clears throat> we call you and see if you answer your phone because if you've got beds, we may need them in the middle of the night. And if you don't answer your phone, we don't want to waste putting you in our resource directory. Um, and we find that when we call these people, if you can catch them by phone, you can certainly donate through their, their button on their website, but if you can catch them by phone, they often just refer you back to social services. So it's become a fashionable, they call it the crime du jour. Um, and uh, it, it, it's, it, it's still tough. It's very tough. I mean, law enforcement has held up their end of the bargain. They've created some phenomenal laws, both the federal government and state government. They've trained a, a lot of officers to go out and rescue these children. problem is, is where do you put them? And many times law enforcement will put these children in juvenile halls to hold them as material witnesses uh, because they need them to testify against the PIP because there is no other place for them. Folks, this is, is, is really a fascinating look inside what she described as America's dirty little secret. Uh, Children of the Night now celebrating its 35th anniversary of rescuing American children. We're talking boys, girls, and transgenders ages 11 through 17 nationwide. She has had more impact on helping these uh, children find a new life, saving them than almost anyone alive. Her facility now has 24 beds, an on-site schooling center, a 24-hour hotline. They provide food, clothing, a safe environment, and now they are placing an average of five children every year into college. She is Dr. Lois Lee, the president and the founder of Children of the Night. And if you'd like to learn more about her organization, perhaps help her, uh, you can find out more at childrenofthenight.org. Our thanks to Dr. Lois Lee. It may be the most unusual sport you've ever heard of, and Key Howard is back with another installment of Ain't Life Grand? This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... Advent Health, introducing the Feel Whole Challenge, a 21-day program offering big improvements through small steps. Taking a walk, making a smoothie, changes that encourage whole person health. More information at feelwholechallenge.com. And by... The Legacy Life Project from Macbeth Studio, preserving family history, stories, and memories for generations to come by creating personal video biographies of your loved ones. Everyone has a story worth preserving. LegacyLifeProject.com Now, the next time you complain that you're bored or there's just nothing interesting to do, I want you to remember Dr. Lucky Meisenheimer. Or if you say you're too busy to pursue your passions, that's another reason you should meet Dr. Lucky Meisenheimer. Plenty of reasons to meet the guy. He is one of the busiest, most interesting, most giving human beings you could ever meet. Uh, in fact, we caught up with Lucky while he was pursuing his newest passion, a little something called underwater hockey. 55-year-old Dr. Lucky Meisenheimer is suiting up for his Wednesday night underwater hockey game. And before you say underwater what, maybe we should quickly recap the life of Lucky. He's a board-certified dermatologist, author of the acclaimed science fiction novel The Immune, host of the world-famous Lucky's Lake Swim. He's been in Ripley's, believe it or not, for swimming a half mile with his foot in his mouth, holds the Guinness World Record for the largest yo-yo collection, is the world's foremost authority on yo-yos, and the author of the definitive book on yo-yo collecting. He's a master swimming world record holder, volunteer coach of the Special Olympic swim team, author of the Zombie Cause Dictionary, and his alter ego, Doc Ruger, is the world's world's greatest zombologist who stars in a series of webisodes produced and directed by Lucky. Apparently, there's not enough acne, zombies, yo-yos, and world records to keep Lucky busy. Were you bored? <laughs> yes, I, I guess there's always something new to try. And at least now you know why his cap says Doc Ruger. Surprisingly, underwater hockey has been around since the 50s, and there are even national and world championships. Some want to make it an Olympic sport. 
Plucky first tried it a couple of years ago and fell in love with it, but he needs others to play, so... He comes to me every Wednesday and knocks at the door and says, are you coming tonight? And I'm here. The sport is unique in many ways, including the fact that it's... The one sport where if you are the best player in the world, at some point you have to go out of play because the air is up there and the puck is down here. It's also a sport that allows everyone of all ages and all sizes, men and women, to play together and play evenly. When you're in your 50s and you can play side by side with your kids, it doesn't matter whether you win or lose, you've had a great day. Oh, yes, for sure, yes. Men against women, men better watch out. <laughs> Muscle doesn't take it, take it. My wife, she's a swimmer. I never was a swimmer, so she brought me out here a couple times. I hated it the first few times. The more I did it, the better I got. And you, you guys saw this stepwise increase in my ability to play and swim. And now I love it. Underwater hockey is officially a non-contact sport, but at times it can get rough. Ariel Sesler is one of the team's founders. He started playing years ago in his native Argentina. I just realized how much I miss the sport. And I used to play in my community pool where I live, in my own little pool, but just by myself. And I really miss it. I need to put this together, and it's a great sport. So I got in touch with Lucky, who got really enthusiastic about it, and we were able to get this started. And now they play every week, enjoying the competition and the camaraderie. But strangely, no one watches them play. And it's got to be just an incredible spectator sport. <laughs> Underwater hockey is number one worst spectator sport ever invented. <laughs> it's worse than even curling. <laughs> what does a, a, a woman say? What does a co-worker say when you tell them, well, I'm into underwater hockey? Uh, there is one reply every time. It doesn't matter who you tell that you play underwater hockey. The answer is always the same. Underwater what? It's a strange sport led by the grand master of strange, Dr. Lucky Meisenheimer, who has somehow found the time to squeeze in one more hobby, a sport that is all about having fun and breaking rule number 15. There's no breath holding or prolonged underwater swimming. You know when you're around Lucky, you wonder how he finds time to get it all in? Well, here's one of the keys to that, folks. Other than a zombie show that he likes to watch, he <laughs> never watches television, just doesn't turn it on because, as we've all learned, once it's on, that hypnotic effect takes hold, and the next thing you know, it's bedtime or the weekday gone is, is entirely gone. And the other key to this guy is his amazing interest in life, his insatiable curiosity, and he is not afraid to try something new. The world, my friends, according to Lucky, is just one big adventure. Well, as you should know by now, we look for the good in life and in people. There is way too much negativity out there, way too many haters, which is why we like Key Howard. Yeah, he's a guy who's been around the block more than a few times. After a decades-long career in the entertainment industry, Key has a new goal. In his mid-80s, Key likes to say, ain't life grand? And you know what? We're happy to give him the opportunity. Did you know that as a world food Potatoes are second in human consumption only to rice. And as a thin, salted, crispy chip, they're America's favorite snack food. Potato chips originated in New England, not as a stroke of culinary invention, but as a fit of anger. In the summer of 1853, an American Indian named George Crum was employed as a chef at an elegant resort in Sarasota Springs, New York. On his menu were thick-cut French fried potatoes, whose recipe was brought back to the United States by then-Ambassador Thomas Jefferson. Well, one dinner guest found the potatoes too thick for his liking, and he sent them back to the kitchen. Crumb cut and fried a thinner batch, but he didn't like those either. Exasperated, Crumb decided to rile the guest by frying up some French fries that were too thin and crispy to skewer with a fork. The plan backfired. The guest was ecstatic. 
and soon other diners were requesting Crumb's potato chips. Because of the demand, they were packaged and sold first locally and then all throughout the New England area. Years later, in the 1920s, Herman Lay, a traveling salesman, peddled potato chips to southern grocers out of the trunk of his car. And Lay's potato chips became the very first successfully marketed national brand. Isn't that great? Until next time, this is Keith Howard. Ain't life grand? Well, now you know about the potato chip. And if you're curious about Key Howard, well, he's an actor, writer, producer, director, a musician who had a big-time career. He worked with Bob Hope, Bing Crosby, Dinah Shore, Nat King Cole, Don Rickles, and others. A man who now, in his mid-80s, still has something to say. Coming up next, she changed the law, making insurance companies pay for breast reconstruction following mastectomy, and now she's on the warpath again. Hear how her efforts could help prevent breast cancer next on Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... The Center for Health and Well-Being, now open in Winter Park. Wholeness, fitness, and medicine together in one convenient location offering programs and services to promote healthy living and positive aging. More at yourhealthandwellbeing.org. Sign up for the Growing Boulder Insider Newsletter. Delivered to your inbox every week. Be the first to see our latest interviews, stories, and tips for making each day count. Sign up today at growingbolder.com. In a soldier's stance, I my hand. Bill Schaefer here along with Mark Middleton, and this promises to be a very provocative discussion because it's with one of America's top plastic surgeons, someone who is a renowned medical consultant in the prevention and treatment of breast cancer. And Mark, the best part, I think you could say she's a bit of a medical rebel. Yeah, we need more of those these days. She actually uh, led a very successful five-year nationwide crusade to require insurance companies to pay for breast reconstruction following mastectomy. It was, in fact, the first law Congress ever passed requiring insurance companies to pay for a specific surgical procedure. And now, get this, she's taking on the entire industry because she believes there are neglected breast cancer discoveries that could save lives. She's the author of the award-winning book, Waking the Warrior Goddess. Say hello to Dr. Christina Horner. Hey, Doc, how are you? I'm doing great. Well, Well, thanks for all you've done and continue to do. Your book really is a guide to research proven natural approaches to prevent and fight breast cancer. But here's my question. If these are proven approaches, why don't we know more about them? Is there something untoward going on? Well, that's a really good question. So, uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, our country is run by big business and uh, money, you know, really talks. So, um, instead of focusing on prevention. We're trying to focus on treatment where there's money to be had in it. So um, actually 98% of our research dollars go, go towards quotes new treatments and only 2% goes uh, towards prevention. But after I lost my mom to breast cancer when I was early in that campaign to, you know, pass the federal legislation and and then watched my patients get younger and younger until finally I was doing uh, women in their 20s and I thought, you know what, something is wrong with this. So that's when I started going through the medical research just to see if there was anything that the researchers had found that was associated with breast cancer that was within our control and I found uh, quite delightful that there were actually thousands and thousands of studies in the medical research showing exactly why we have a breast cancer epidemic, all the things that we're doing to contribute to it and the things that we traditionally don't do in this culture that are highly protective, and they were all natural. So food, supplements, herbs, lifestyle. So really 95% of the cases of breast cancer are things that potentially could be prevented through diet and lifestyle alone. And not just prevention, but maybe even other treatments. Mark was telling me something I couldn't even wrap my mind around that he learned from you, and he said that something about a breast cancer vaccine. 
Right. So you know how they've developed a vaccine because for cervical cancer because they found that most cervical cancers were associated with the human papillomavirus. So similarly, um, there is a virus that they have found that affects a certain percentage of cases. It's not as predominant as what we see in cervical cancer, but here in the United States when they did testing on various different breast cancer samples in New York City, they found that 40% of the specimens they checked actually had this breast cancer virus. So there's several different places working on a vaccine. The Cleveland Clinic is actually further along than most, and and they have developed a vaccine that doesn't uh, just target the virus. It's actually targeting a protein, which is produced by most breast cancers, and they're going to start clinical trials in about two years, but realistically, we probably won't have it on the market for about 10 years. And here's the other side of that story, Dr. Horner, uh, from your book, uh, is that uh, you know, it's research dollars that drive all of this and make this happen. So Cleveland Clinic's doing a great thing. They've identified a, a virus. Uh, they're developing a vaccine. So now they need money to bring it uh, uh, to the rest of us through human trials. You say that the National Cancer Institute and Susan Komen for the Cure have rejected grant proposals. Why would they do that? Well... <laughs> Their uh, their target is on treatments. I'll just I'll just stay with that. So they're kind of targeting and you know in liaisons with various different researchers that are that are focusing on treatments. So once again, it's like you know for me, it's like that's why I'm out here with my message. I actually left my practice to dedicate myself full time to teaching people about how to become and stay healthy naturally. And really, if you do all of the healthy things that I talk about in my book, they found that you're resistant to the breast cancer virus in the first place. So that's one way to, you know, ensure that you're going to um, not get that virus and uh, the, all you get is side benefits because the more of these things that you do, the healthier you are and the better you feel and the less likely you'll get any kind of chronic disease, including cancers. If you're dealing with it now, Dr. Horner, it, is there anything on the horizon that, that, that offers any hope to people who are in that situation now? Oh, sure. So, again, all the things that I talk about in my book, um, you know, are things that help women to more successfully fight their disease. So there's a number of different uh, oncologists that are called integrative oncologists, where they're combining Western treatments as well as complementary and alternative medicine, meaning foods and supplements and lifestyle and so forth. And they find that if you do a combination of both, you have a three times better outcome than if you just do Western medicine alone. So uh, in addition to that, there's some, you know, things that are being tried throughout the world. Uh, Most of them are being done at clinics outside of the United States because we just have a problem with our FDA. So, so give us, uh, you know, some of the stuff that we could uh, w- we could be taking uh, in, in some fashion. I read a lot about turmeric these days, green tea. Are those things that can prevent cancer? Yeah, you bet. So we hear about them because it absolutely is true. Turmeric's really interesting. It's an Indian spice that the bright yellow orange cur- color that you find in curries, but it's considered the number one anti-cancer spice. It inhibits 17 different kinds of cancers. There's 5,500 studies in the medical research, and lots of research is being done here in the United States on it, and particularly at MD Anderson, the big cancer hospital. So if you're going to add any kind of spice you know, to, your, to your life, that definitely is the one you want to go with, and realistically, people aren't going to cook with it every day, so that's why I recommend taking it as a supplement. And actually, you know, there's a terrible statistic that 90% of people go back to the original diet and lifestyle after they've had a heart attack in, in the United States within one year. So it's very hard for people to make these diet and lifestyle changes. So to look at that realistically, I always recommend that people start with a few nutritional supplements first because that's something everyone can do today and you can get some good protection. So one of my favorite is called AH. CC, and it's a mushroom formula. And what it does is it helps to um, support all the uh, cells in our immune system. So our immune system is the thing that keeps us healthy, and when it gets slugged from stress, from lack of sleep, from um, eating junk foods, that's when these cancer cells can start to grow because our immune system can't keep up with it. But taking something like AHCC, which has got hundreds of studies done in Japan, it's the uh, second most commonly prescribed uh, complementary and alternative medicine treatment there, and it's actually prescribed in hospitals to cancer patients because what they found is AHCC, if you take it on a regular basis, it lowers your risk of all sorts of different kinds of cancers. If you take AHCC, 
HCC, if you have cancer, the survival statistics are much better, plus it helps to take away some of the uh, side effects from uh, chemotherapy. So that's a really quick, easy thing that you can do to help support your immune system. Uh, green tea, as you mentioned, is another uh, thing. We hear it's a health drink. It absolutely is. It inhibits 11 different kinds of cancers, very powerful anti-inflammatory, antioxidant. And interestingly, turmeric and green tea, so when you start combining healthy things, they have synergistic effects with each other, meaning that each one makes the other one more effective. So green tea will enhance the anti-cancer effects of turmeric by three times, and turmeric enhances the anti-cancer effects of green tea by eight times. So when you start food combining healthy foods, you actually get this multiplication of protection, and it becomes incredibly easy to dramatically lower your risk. Well, folks, this is one of the most important interviews we've ever done with one of the best guests we've ever had. If you want more information, the book is called Waking the Warrior Goddess. And you can learn a lot more at Dr. Christine Horner. Dot com, drchristinehorner.com. Check her out immediately. Doc, thanks for all the work that you're doing. Thanks for raising the flag of, of really caring about people, and, and good luck to your, uh, to your fight in the future. Coming up next, remaining in the workforce on your own terms for as long as you like. Is it possible? We'll find out next on Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by Winter Park's new Crosby Wellness Center at the Center for Health and Well-Being. More than just a gym, it features unique medically integrated programs, activities for all ages and skill levels, and free group exercise classes with memberships. More at CrosbyWellnessCenter.org. Stay connected to Growing Boulder for daily doses of hope, inspiration, and possibility. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for our latest stories and motivational pictures. My guard stood hard when abstract threats to noble, to neglect. Bill and Mark here with more of Growing Boulder. And on this program, one of the things we talk a lot about is active longevity. And our next guest, well, he talks about something else called productive longevity. He is, in fact, the president of the Center for Productive Longevity, a great organization that believes that people over 50 still have plenty of gas in the tank, still have plenty to offer not only to themselves and their families, but to businesses and society in general. So let's get him on and see what we can find out from Bill Zinke. How are you, Bill? It's it, The last name is pronounced Zinc, and I'm just fine. Great. Well, listen, glad you straightened that out. And before we get to talking about businesses and the media to try to understand the power and potential of the 50-plus demographic, can we talk for a minute about getting ourselves to understand that? Because it seems like so many of us, Bill, have even brainwashed ourselves to some degree because of the culture and because of the messages that are out there to believe that age is less I don't know, almost we have an inferiority complex the older we get. Do you agree with that? Well, I have a favorite saying, age is mind over matter. If you don't mind, it don't matter. So I think one of the problems is that people have uh, been uh, acculturated to believe that when you reach a certain age, pick 50, 55, 60, 65, you are out of the game, over the hill, and on the shelf. I tell people that I am over the hill, I pause, and then I add with a smile. And what I've learned is that you pick up speed going down the other side. Now, how do we get to where people don't have to, you know, start with the negative connotation and fight to believe in the positive one? Well, I, I, I think, first of all, you need, you need to believe in yourself. You need to, you need to take a look back at, at the life you've lived, what you have accomplished, um, and... Uh, and uh, and feel good about those accomplishments and and where you are in life and uh, uh of course there are there are certain ways to uh look more positively on your life and uh we call that successful aging which is a combination of remaining physically fit and uh committed to wellness to remaining productively engaged which means continuing in some kind of worthwhile activity not necessarily uh work but it could be volunteerism or or teaching or some other kind of activity that adds value to society and third that you remain socially connected those are those are really the three 
critical aspects of successful aging. And there was a book on that topic with the same title written by two people named John Rowe and uh, and um, the other name was, uh, it slips me, but uh, it's an excellent book and I recommend it highly. Well, we're talking with the president for the Center of Productive Longevity, Bill Zink. Bill, tell us, why did you put this organization together? What does it do? Well, the Center for Productive, uh, Productive Longevity has a mission which has been revised because of the high unemployment and low economic growth in this country, going back to the end of 2007. But the mission is to stimulate the substantially increased engagement of people 50 and older in productive activities, paid and volunteer, where they are ready, qualified and ready to continue adding value. So who do you talk to? Who do you aim your, your, your focus at? Is it at? Is it at those of us over 50 to let us know that we need to be out there and need to be active? Or is it at the businesses to let them know at what a, 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 a big difference this workforce can make for their companies? Well, it's really, it's really both. But let me, let me, let me add that, that our mission has been modified to some degree because uh, of uh, what I said a moment ago, that we have, we have, and will continue to have high unemployment and low economic growth. So that makes it difficult for anyone, let alone older people, to uh, obtain jobs. Uh, there just aren't many jobs available unless you have special skills and ability. And so, uh, what we have done is to uh, focus on entrepreneurship or new business creation for people 50 and older. In that connection, we held four one-day meetings in 2012, different parts of the country. Uh, at the, the, the title of, of each being Spotlight on Entrepreneurship Opportunities for Baby Boomers 50 and Older. And, uh, and uh, then we uh, had a national conference last November, uh, in, which uh, was again focused on on the really the the imperative for people 50 and older to to uh, create new businesses because uh they not only uh, can uh, provide themselves with employment but but uh, entrepreneurship has been the backbone of the US economy since uh, the country began and uh, leads to uh increased employment and economic growth for the entire country so uh, we have been focused on on this issue, uh, these issues, I should say, for the last uh, oh, quite a few years. So basically, Bill, instead of trying to uh, convince an employer at a company that you bring value to the company, you're saying that we should start thinking of businesses we can start ourselves, that we can run ourselves. Uh, do you have any examples of some that are, that work real well, that are easy to start, that don't need a ton of capital to get going in? Or, or are you talking about just more of following your passion and doing what you've always wanted to do? Well, uh, both. Both. Because uh, uh, there are people who... Uh, have a have a great idea that they've uh, noodled for many years, but haven't implemented because they were working for a company and uh, had a family to raise and feed and and and, and educate. And uh, now uh, people 50 and older may have may have the time and even some funds uh, to uh, to do something different, to march their own drummer and be their own boss. And uh, so that can be done. Uh, on, a, on a relatively inexpensive basis, by working out of your own home, um, and uh, and uh, there are of course uh, other ways of doing it too. But you but you can do it in a relatively inexpensive way. There there are some important points to starting up a company. First of all, there are there are not only rewards of of being an entrepreneur, but there are also risks. It, and there are certain attributes uh, required for being your own boss, and one of them is to have a certain level of risk orientation. Uh, and then you have to you have to uh, uh, strategize and identify a new business opportunity. And it, and it doesn't necessarily be something brand new. I'd like to give give you a specific illustration. Um, I, I have a friend. He has been my barber for the last 17 years, and he's excellent. Uh, he was working for, uh, from a barber shop here in Boulder, and uh, in, in more recent years, I said, "You know, Anthony, you ought to set up your own uh, company." And uh, 
and be your own boss because you would be great at it. He's a really intelligent uh, and outward-looking person. So three years ago, he did exactly that. He set up a, a, a barber shop in a nearby town, and he's been extraordinarily successful. You don't go to his barber shop to get a haircut. You go there for an experience. He has a, a putting green in one corner where you can practice while you're waiting. He has a, a uh, an antique uh, uh, children's barber shop for kids who are waiting for their parents. And uh, he has beer on tap if you want, if you want to have a glass. He put, has artwork on the wall, uh, walls, good artwork that you can not only admire but even buy if you're interested. And, Bill, I guess, I guess the whole point is to stay as active as we can. And, folks, go to the Center for Productive Longevity at ctrpl.org to learn more from our guest, Bill Zink. Thanks so much, Bill. Coming up, you might not remember his name, but if you were a teenager in the 60s, I'm guessing you remember his music. The Zombies' Colin Blundstone is next on Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... Advent Health, introducing the Feel Whole Challenge, a 21-day program offering big improvements through small steps, like a daily walk, making smoothies, changes that encourage whole person health. More information at feelwholechallenge.com. Subscribe to Growing Boulder Magazine, now with more information, articles, and photos than ever before. This quarterly publication is unlike any other, filled with the kind of inspiration you need to live your life to the fullest. More information at growingbolder.com slash subscribe. And let me try with pleasure hands to take you in the sun to promised lands to show you Schaefer and Mark Middleton here on Growing Boulder. You know, Mark, if we could interview anybody on this program, wouldn't you love to talk to the guy whose voice is all over this song? That's not possible. It's not. It's too cool. <laughs> well, listen, our next guest, anyway, was a member of the legendary Zombies. Wait a minute. I, have I heard of them? Yeah. One of the most innovative British groups of the first wave of the British invasion. Those guys were amazing. Yeah, and he truly was one of the great rock vocalists of the 60s. His voice has been on some of the most memorable songs in pop history, including Tell Her No, Time of the Season, which we just heard. And one of my all-time favorites, a little tune called She's Not There. Well, no one told me about her, the way she lied. Well, no one told me I cannot get enough of that. It is as good today as it was back in the day. The unmistakable sound of Colin Blundstone, who has just released a new solo album titled On the Air Tonight. Let's welcome the man, the voice, Colin Blundstone. Hey, Colin, how are you? I'm fine. Great to talk to you. Oh, man. It's fantastic to talk to you. You know, you've been successfully touring in recent years uh, with Rod Argent, your your Zombies bandmate, who who actually wrote She's Not There. What's it like touring in your late 60s now as opposed to touring back in the 60s? Well, I think, uh, you know, in both both periods of our career, it, it was very exciting because in the 60s, we were just fresh out of school, and and in its own way, it was quite unexpected. We were just a local band that managed to get a bit of a local following, and, and it just built up until suddenly we're, we're traveling around the world playing the music we love. And, of course, that was incredibly exciting. And now here we are. It's totally unexpected that at this time in our lives, we would still be playing live. And so there's still that sort of incredible excitement about what we're doing. Uh, I think both Rod and I thought that our live touring days were well behind us. And we just we decided to play six concerts in 1999, and we just had such a wonderful time. We just kept going. And uh, no one's more surprised than us <laughs> that we're still doing this at this time in our lives. And not just the live performing, Colin, but you guys are back in the studio. You've recorded a solo album. How cool is that? I know. Again, I'm, you know, I love writing songs and I love recording and performing. To me, that's 
that's the magical part of the music business. If you can be involved in that very first spark of an idea of a song, you see the song develop, and then you go through the whole recording process, and then right at the end, you get the chance to go out and play it to people. It's just such a, a, a very exciting journey, and it's a real privilege to be able to, be, to do that. And I love to do it, and I mean, the more recording and writing and performing I can do, the better. So uh, when I got the opportunity to um, record some solo albums as well as doing the zombies, yeah, great, why not? Uh, passion, uh, uh, Colin, you can hear the passion and enthusiasm in your voice. It, it's fabulous. And folks, just so you don't get the wrong idea that this guy's best days are in the past, let's listen to a cut from his new album. Once again, it's called On the Air Tonight. This is a little tune by uh, that's called Wild Places. How good is that, Bill? And Colin, how do, you, the pipes are still there, buddy. <laughs> well, I hope so. I mean, we do our best. Um, I think in some ways, as you get older, you improve. Uh, you know, um, hopefully phrasing's a bit better. You've got a bit more technique. But maybe you're not quite as spontaneous as you were when you were in your teens and in your 20s. Um, but, you know, hopefully people can still enjoy uh, my performances. Uh, you know, it was recently announced, Colin, that the Zombies are among the nominees for the next induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And I've only got one reaction to that, and that is, what took so long? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm just incredibly uh, flattered that we were nominated. Um, and, I mean, uh, who, who does the nominating and who gets nominated is way out of my control. I'm just, I'm, I'm just really thrilled that we got nominated. It's... It, you know, I suppose it's the same with all bands. I, I kind of think of us as just, you know, young boys, young local guys that sort of put their heart and soul into a project and perhaps got a little bit lucky. And to, to think that after all these years, we start to get recognized like that with a nomination for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I just I think it's really thrilling. Colin, you sound like such a, a grateful person, and yet we hear stories of so many people that make it big, they become jaded and negative, and they want to isolate themselves as far away from everybody as possible. But but you, you're not that way. What was the difference? Well, I, I lost you a little bit there, but I think I got the, the general uh, thrust of what you were saying. Um, maybe, how, like, how did the zombies keep their feet on the ground? Yeah, well, why, why hasn't the business jaded you? How have you managed to stay so appreciative of everything? Well, um, I think in our formative years, because we, for a long time, we all, we all lived at home, and we stayed with our friends that, that we'd grown up with, they wouldn't allow you to get carried away with successes. And I think that, well, you know, once you've accepted that, uh, having a hit record doesn't really change anything. If you're still the same person, uh, then you've 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 kind of um, formed your your person, the person you're going to be, and you're not going to change. Uh, you know, I see music as a career, and and if you like, it's a job. I mean, I I go to work and I try and write and record and perform to the best of my abilities. But when I come home. I, you know, I'm I'm just an ordinary person, same as any other musician, and I just feel very privileged that uh, I've had the opportunity to work in this career for such a long time. I mean, we made our first record 50 years ago hmm. in 1964, and we were playing for three years before that. So we've been at this at this game for 53 years. Just an ordinary bloke living an extraordinary life. Uh, what kind of crowd shows up to, to, to see you and the zombies play these days? Well, you know, it's quite surprising because it's quite age-wise. It's quite a, a cross-section of ages. Um, I think a lot of young people are very interested to come and see bands that were there at the, the beginning of the British invasion. Um, and so we do get... We get uh, a large section of people who have been interested in our music from 1964, and they've stayed loyal to us all the way through. But we also get a lot of really young music enthusiasts who just want to come and see uh, the people that were involved in that magical time. 
Colin, in our last few seconds, can you give us a takeaway? What what have you learned about life from your unique spot in it all? Um, well, I think I've learned roughly that you get back in pretty much fair proportion to what you put in. And when you when you work hard and you know you put in a good shift, you you put in a lot of effort over a period of time you get your just reward. It may not come the next day, but very roughly speaking, you receive back in proportion to what you put in. Great advice from, uh, obviously, a great guy, folks. He is Colin Blundstone of The Zombies, his new solo album on the air tonight, and you can learn more by checking out his personal website, which is colinblundstone.co.uk. Colin, thanks for your time. We leave you now with a growing bolder takeaway. You've heard the saying that laughter is the best medicine, and researchers actually say there is a great deal of truth to that, Bill. You know, it's also good for your health, Mark, love. One wise physician once said the best medicine for humans of all is love. And when someone asked what if it doesn't work, he smiled and said, just increase the dose. (laughs) And again, Bill, researchers say it's true. Love raises your body's immunity, lowers your blood pressure, reduces stress and depression, and it doesn't have to be the romantic kind of love. Close friendships and loving friends have the same effect. And quote my friend Mark Middleton here when he always says, all you need is love. See you next time. Growing Boulder is a production of Boulder Broadcasting. All rights reserved. This program was recorded live at Growing Boulder's studios in Orlando and is available as a weekly podcast on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play Music, Stitcher, and TuneIn. It is written and produced by Jill Middleton, Mark Middleton, and Bill Schaefer. Executive producers are Jackie Carlin, Robert Thompson, and Emily Thompson. Technical director is Jason Morrow. Production manager is Michael Nannis. Director of technology is Joshua Doolittle. Chief audio engineer is Mac Dula. And our most important team member is you. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to keep growing bolder every day. Crimson flames tied through my ears, going high and mighty trapped. Countless fires.